0: Hello, everyone. I'm Frederick Gieschen, and this is my second conversation with Sebastian Malaby. Previously, we talked about his book, More Money Than God, on the history of the hedge fund industry. And this time around, we talk about his new book, The Power Law, on the history and players in venture capital. And Sebastian might be the only person who has a real uh, historical understanding and connection with all the players and, and deep grasp of both of these very different asset classes. And so it was a real joy to get into that and compare and contrast the the types of firms, the cultures, what makes investors really good in in venture, why they're important, and how they build their own firms, what makes them successful at cultivating and and, uh, retaining and training talent and uh, and picking founders. So we get into all of that as well as some some general topics from the book, especially the balance between talent and and capital and the long themes and and cycles um, that happen in, in venture and tech. It was a fascinating conversation. As usual, I learned a lot from Sebastian, and I'm very grateful that he came on uh, to talk to me. I hope you hope you enjoyed, as per the usual. None of this is an investment advice. And with that, let's go. So great, Sebastian. Thank you so much. For, I'm so excited to have you again to talk about uh, your new book, and, and I'm really grateful that you're taking the time. Good to be with you. So I want to start off, right? Um, I'm a big fan of More Money Than God and a big fan of The Power Law. And so you've dug into two very different industries and or or, or sectors of investment management. I'm curious if you could, if you could compare and contrast a little bit the the culture and especially meaning in, in hedge funds and venture, especially as it relates to sort of um, networking and being willing to share um, strategies and ideas with with an outsider. What was your experience like um, getting into the the world of venture and getting them? to open up in, and um, making those connections versus uh, the world of hedge funds?
1: It was very different. Um, you know, One of the things is that in the venture capital world, making and uh, accepting introductions is sort of the bread and butter. It's all about networking. If you're a venture capitalist, you can only make an investment in a startup if you actually get to meet the startup. And to meet startups, you need to be meeting lots of people who will keep you in mind when something pops up. And so that that kind of networking culture meant that I was able to, you know, meet someone and they had friends in Silicon Valley, and they would think it was normal to send you know six or eight emails to their friends saying, "Hey, you'd enjoy a conversation with sebastian." and um it was funny because at the beginning, there were some people uh, who lived in Silicon Valley but were not actually venture capitalists. And when they said that, they didn't mean it and they never wrote those emails. But when the venture capital people said it, they really did mean it. Uh, and what's more, when people received those emails, they they did the meetings. That's a bit different to, to hedge funds where I think there's more of a culture of secrecy um, and there's no need to network to get into the investment because you just see it on the screen and you, you buy it um, or you short it. Uh, and so that's different. On the other hand, when you actually go and see a hedge fund manager, um, by the time you get into the meeting and they've decided they want to talk to you, they have pretty crunchy, you know meaty arguments for how they are generating alpha. It's a pretty cerebral business, and people have really thought through what they're doing. Um, I think it's a bit different with venture capital, where there's a lot of you know running around meeting people and sort of, you know, making bets, but it's quite hard to explain what the skill is because you know that, you know, seven or eight of your bets out of 10 will go to zero. I mean, that's the whole point about the power law distribution. And so your your return profile is going to look something like this, you know, failure, 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 home run failure failure i mean it looks like luck and people don't analyze that super carefully and so when you say well how did you choose this investment you know, i had a good feeling about it you know, i mean you have to kind of cut through the waffle more with venture capital
0: mm-hmm. so and 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 um actually there's, there's a couple of things i want to ask about that but Maybe if you could start off, it seems to me that one key idea behind the book or, or something that you're laying out is is sort of this trying to disentangle what is luck and what is skill in this business when it's often maybe not even clear to the principles themselves, right? They, maybe they get successful, but they may have really then a hard time after the fact articulating why exactly certain bets work. So so maybe summarize for me how you think about um, what is really luck and what is skill in, in that business or...
1: The first thing to be said is that there is a theoretical possibility that if you took, you know, 20 people who set up venture capital operations in year one, you know, by the law of probability, one or two of them would get a couple of hits in the first couple of years. And then that would have a massive reputation effect. And so the best venture capitalists, I mean, the best entrepreneurs would come to those VCs and want to have them on their cap table. So that initial luck combined with path dependency could explain um, the success that then appears like skill but it's not really and there's a bit of a literature on this which i explore that in feedback loop businesses or areas you do get that happening so there's a nice experiment where you know somebody creates a list of 10 songs and invites a subject to come and you know look at listen to the 10 songs and download the two that he or she likes and then you have somebody else come and do the same thing and each time the person coming can see what's been downloaded more before and the songs that look popular get downloaded more by the next people because there is a kind of you know social proof going on and at the end of the experiment when you know a couple of hundred people have uh, done this for you what you get is a sort of superstar effect where one song is by far and away the most downloaded and it looks like the absolutely best song. But then if you repeat the experiment with the same songs but a different group of people, they'll again be a superstar winner but it'll be a different one. Uh, And so, so it shows how, you know, one song gets lucky at the beginning and then everybody downloads it and then it's just path dependency. So there is that theory. Um, but I kind of road tested it. And I think in the case of venture capital, although it's plausible, it's wrong to think about the industry that way. Partly because the path dependency is not actually that strong. I have a chart in my book showing how the top handful of VC partnerships actually changes by decade. You know, some go up, some go down. And partly because occasionally I eventually had meetings where it wasn't a lot of waffle when people explained the alpha to me, they actually were quite specific and persuasive about how they were doing better than other VC partnerships. Mm, So tell me about those meetings. Well, I mean, the best example is probably uh, Sequoia, uh, which is accepted as the top venture capital partnership in the world. Um, And they were very clear in how they explained their method to me. Uh, It took a long time. It was a bit more like venture capital, sorry, it was a bit more like hedge funds in the sense that uh, they rebuffed me at first. They didn't want to talk to me. I had a nice meeting through a friendly introduction to Michael Moritz, who for a long time was the leader of Sequoia. And he said, look, you're a good guy. I like you. We're both British by origin. We're both journalists in the past, but there's no upside for us in talking to a writer because we are the top of the game. We raise as much capital as we need. Why would we bother talking to you? You know, Goodbye. Um, and it took a, you know, a year or two of networking to break into the cathedral. But once I was in, they are very thoughtful people indeed. And I spent, you know, I don't know what, 20 hours of something of interviews in the end with lots of their partners, going back to see them multiple times. And they explained to me, for example, how they thought about uh, behavioral bias in decision-making. Um, they observed that you know all venture capital partnerships tend to have a Monday morning meeting where potential investments are presented to the partnership. And you sit around the table, you discuss it, there are no objective metrics, for the most part, because it's early stage. So it's opinions. And if people are feeling bullish one Monday, they might make one decision. Two Mondays later, they might make a different decision. And as uh, Rudolf Berta, who's recently emerged as the uh, top person that Sequoia put it to me, it felt to us as though the fact that we might make a different decision on the same set of facts one Monday compared to a different Monday, that was not a good basis for sustainable success. So they analyzed the biases and they figured out ways of of correcting for them. Um, And so, for example, we know that we anchor on past decisions. Um, And so when a venture capital company decides not to invest in a startup at the series A stage, it's quite difficult to change your mind at the series B stage and say, oh, we screwed up. We should have invested earlier at a lower valuation. But now, even though it's painful to go in and pay much, much more for the shares at series B, you know what? We should because we were wrong the first time. And so they were, you know, they they kind of put that on the table and said, guys, you know, we're probably anchoring. We're probably turning things down at Series B, which we should take. And so from now on, anybody who argues against the Series B investment is going to be subjected to cross-examination about, are you sure you're not anchoring? Um, So lots of other tricks that Sequoia did, but that was one.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, it reminds me of how hard it can be for somebody in the public markets when they pass on a stock or or anything and, and it, it starts to go up and, and the bias is sort of, well, I, I could have bought this at a lower price and it's hard to overcome that that anchoring. Um, And you have you have some other examples about what Sequoia does well, um, right? The Scout program, there's a lot of structural factors, but there's also a comment about, um, I think it was more specifically, <clears throat> it takes a younger partner and goes to the calendar with them and um, sort of coaches them on how to manage their time and what's what's a good use of time. And it struck me that they emphasize sort of the development of, of internal talent in, in people. And was that, did that strike you as as unique? How important was that? I, I thought it was an interesting anecdote, but it's always hard to, to gauge, um, you know, how, how pervasive that is and, and how valuable it, it is.
1: It's not always all that pervasive, uh, you know, because um, it's tempting in a venture capital partnership, depending slightly on how the incentives are structured inside it, to compete with your own partners. So at Kleiner Perkins, in the period when it went from being the top venture partnership in Silicon Valley around 2001, um, to the period when it really dropped out of the top 10, uh, in the last five years or so. Um, what went wrong there was that the culture didn't encourage nurturing the younger talent properly. And so instead of nurturing the talent, you know, a younger investor might identify a good deal, bring in the company, and then an older investor would say, yeah, that's a good investment, but you know what, because of my past experience of doing this or doing that, or maybe knowing one of the founders of this company, I think I should go on the board, because you know I'm the senior person. And if you do that, you're never going to nurture the younger investor, give them a chance to get experience on the board and grow and have the stature then to become the senior investor later. And at Sequoia, in contrast, the older people really made it their business to invest their own time and go out of their way to, to build the talent of the younger investors. And part of it was, you know, sitting down with somebody and saying, okay, let's look at your resume, Let, not your resume, let's look at your calendar and, uh, and see how you spent your time. Uh, but other examples include, you know, the young investor brings an investment in and the older one says not, I'll displace you on the board, but hey, let's go to the board meetings together. If the company looks like it's going to fail, I'll be the board member and I'll take the hit to my reputation. But if it's going to succeed, I want you to be the board member, and then you get the halo effect when they go public or when they're required for a big profit. And that halo effect is going to help you then to do more, you know, get into more great deals later. Um, and that's what uh, Rudolf Berto experienced from one of the older parties at Sequoia, and he, he told me about that. And then there's just straight emotional stuff, right? Um, because of the way that venture investments work, you know, you you make a bunch of bets, some inevitably go to zero. Mm-hmm. The failures happen faster than the successes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And so your only early experience is that you're going down that, you know, curvy bit of the hockey stick. Um, and it, it hurts. It's not merely that you lost money, it's that you've damaged people, right? Because, you know, a startup has folks who come and work there, they work all weekend and all night, and they're putting everything into it. And then the thing fails. And it was all for nothing. You know, um, the stock options that they had are worth zero. And that's a grueling thing. If you're one of the people on the board who encourage these folks to join the company and put everything into it, and then you got to say to them, sorry, it didn't work. So, you know, to take people, to take investors through those tough emotional moments it helps if your partners are there to back you up and say look you know this is what happens doesn't mean you're a bad investor doesn't mean you're a bad guy you know hang in there um and and they're going to be there for you and i think again you know that was something that was described to me by people at sequoia uh, which helped them to to grow into the job when they began
0: mm-hmm yeah, I, I this I, I thought that whole section was 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 really interesting, and and it it strikes me if you have that kind of culture, it uh, it can make a difference. But I was also thinking so specifically maybe more it's because he has a background, right? He he started off as a journalist, then he wrote um, the uh, the Magic Kingdom, the, the the book about Steve Jobs, and then transitioned into an investing role. So was in the back of my mind, I was thinking somebody like him um is probably also very savvy in terms of how to communicate the story how to engage if he decides you know with a uh, with you or with a um, with anybody in the media and so i'm curious and there's other examples of of venture capital firms investing a lot in in their own media arms and and trying to sort of you know um, create a narrative about about their companies and and creating value there i'm I'm curious how you think about that interaction and, and whether there is how to discern what actually happens versus sort of the the natural incentive of of a venture firm to you know to tell a story and 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 maybe being very very good at you know crafting narratives. I, I wonder um, whether that kind of factor in or or how you thought about just that relationship between media and, and venture capital.
1: Look, venture capital is definitely a storytelling business, uh, partly because analysis in pre-revenue companies is difficult right there's no price earnings ratio because there's no earnings um so you can't really do quantitative analysis uh what you've got to do is make judgments um based on the character of the people you're backing based on how you think the size of the market may turn out although that's extremely impressionistic because the market's being invented by the new company so you know difficult to say how big the market is but you make these impressionistic judgments and then you've got to persuade other people that it's your impression not their impression that's true and you need to persuade both early employees to take the risk with their own time and effort and sweat equity to actually join the company you need to persuade customers to take the risk of buying from a startup, I'm talking about corporate customers here, but obviously there's a risk. You don't want your supplier to go out of business 12 months later, leaving you with a software program that nobody can update for you. And then you need to persuade the next round of investors and there's always gonna be another round nine months later. And so storytelling is part of the deal uh, and both startup founders and venture capitalists need to be good at that. It doesn't mean that fraud is part of the deal or lying is part of the deal. I mean, people often say, ah, Silicon Valley, it's all about premature truth, which is the same as lying. Hence Theranos, you know, the blood testing company that just made stuff up, that's that's wrong. Um, there's a difference between expanding your vision in a compelling way and actually making data up.
0: <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, tell me, so when I look at at the hedge fund world, right, I see all of these different um, let's call them buckets, right. People follow follow a value strategy or growth. They do macro. They do event driven. There's there's a lot of different strategies and philosophies. People are traders, long term holders, and when I look at venture, it's it's not as clear to me whether um, maybe when you when you approach this with a blank slate and there was a whole universe of firms, um, did you mentally organize them into different approaches or strategies or lineages? Or how did you sort of discern? Okay, you know, are there just different different groups who, who approach their business in, in different but distinct ways? Um, how, how did you sort of organize this mentally? Or, or is it sort of really firm by firm?
1: Having written more money than God, I was very much keen to put these different companies in buckets. And so, for example, I would go and see two different venture investors who had invested in one company, the same company, right? They co-invested. And I would try to find out whether they saw the prospect differently Um, because that would have been a good test of, you know, (laughs) the contrasting mindsets. And there are subtle differences, but not very clear ones because this is such an impressionistic uh, storytelling world. And people tend to have a few different stories going on in their head at once when they invest. And it's not like, you know, you go with one sort of chain of logic, but not the other one, because it's more blurry than that in venture capital. The distinctions people make are more around stage. Um, so, are you a seed investor? Are you a series A investor? Are you a growth investor? They might make distinctions by geography. And they might make distinctions by sector. So, you know, increasingly as venture capital has matured, investors have specialized in particular technologies so that they're really deep on something like, you know, software as a service, or they might be deep on, um, you know, medical robotics or or what have you. Um, But I mean, the, the, the sort of, when people try to say, sort of mental approach buckets. You know, they say things like, well, some people really want to bet on the size of the market, and other people really want to bet on the type of founder they are backing. And when I really stress tested that kind of theory, I found it was normally not true. Uh, that okay. yeah.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting because that was sort of one of the the back of the napkin ideas I had. Well people care about ultimately different different factors but it's it yeah it wasn't clear to me whether that was actually true or whether that's just part of um, a specific firm sort of um, you know public public persona um, I,
1: I did i did make a, a subtle distinction uh, you know in the case of investing in Google which is just maybe worth a quick mention which is that you know google had a strong position at series A because it had a working product which already had better search results than the rivals so it browbeat, the two top venture capital companies at the time sequoia and kleiner perkins into co-investing so there you had a natural experiment right where you know two top vcs were doing the same investment did they have a different logic and i came to the view that they had a subtly different logic you know that kleiner perkins was more a believer in sheer technical breakthroughs uh, that you know, an engineering advance could generate a product that wasn't just slightly better, it was 10x better. Um, and I think that reflected the fact that both the dominant partners, John Doerr and Vinod Kosler, were engineers by training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when they backed Google, I think they really did sort of believe that the fact that the product was better was a huge deal. And, and therefore it justified a high valuation. I think Michael Moritz who invested for Sequoia came at it, you know, with a different mindset slightly, you know, he also could see the product was much better, of course. So it's only a squishy and subtle comparison, but I think he he also thought of um, the Google investment in terms of, you know, Branding and more the kind of media side that he came out of himself. Yeah. And he, he said he made this remark that he'd invested in Google to look after Yahoo. In other words, he'd already invested in Yahoo before. Yahoo had a popular web portal at the time. And part of him thought that, you know, Google would be the search engine in the top right hand corner of the Yahoo site uh, and would, you know, would be a, a very valuable utility yeah but he didn't he didn't quite disentangle the excellence of the engineering from the relative branding positions of the two interesting
0: yeah it seems like he I mean especially with Yahoo it seems like he was very early to grasp sort of the power of media on the internet and and, and the potential that it could have um, it still comes back to um, backing the right people right and and I'm curious um, since this is since identifying the right founders is such a big part of the business i sometimes think like th- there should be very clear frameworks right like this kind of person with those characteristics or from that background and in and and on the and, and then it instead it seems fairly you know fairly uh squishy to me i am I'm, I'm struggling with how people actually do that and also it strikes me there's um a change um, from from highly technical and maybe more experienced founders to kind of the the rebels that created uh, maybe the world of social media. So I'm I'm curious how what you've experienced how how do people talk about um, the founders, they select and choose to back and are there different philosophies or frameworks? Or does it? How? What did you learn about that entire conundrum?
1: Well, one of the aha moments um, when a light bulb really went on in my head was when I was talking to Kevin Effercy of Axel who did the investment in Facebook. And you know he was talking to me about this idea of the prepared mind, which Axel originated. It was Arthur Patterson, one of the co-founders of Axel, who came up with this term. And the idea was that you know when you saw a new technological wave coming, you would prepare your mind for what was going to happen. You would think through... potential businesses that would logically have to be created and then you would think about and this is what kevin stressed the way that different types of business would logically have different types of founder and so when you were building capital intensive hardware you wanted somebody who was sort of really responsible and deliberate and a good engineer and was not going to make the mistake of spending large amounts of capital on a manufacturing operation until they really got the design right and they knew what they were doing. But when you were doing software, you know, 10 or 20 years later, you could obviously make a software project, you know, much more cheaply than a hardware product. So the right approach is to actually move fast and break things. When Mark Zuckerberg said that that about Facebook, it wasn't some sort of punky, you know, t-shirt slogan. It was the logical implication of a world where software businesses were dominating. In software, you do A/B test things. So you put things in out in the market, and then you put another version out if you want to, and you see which one goes better. And that's just since the since the barrier to putting it into the market is so low, that's the best way to figure out product market fit, um, and therefore. In a software world, a young founder who is brash and moves quickly and doesn't care about being responsible is perfectly fine and, in fact, better. Furthermore, complex credentials, which you might need in hardware engineering, maybe matter less in coding, where, you know, the basic coding skills are not that difficult relative to hardware engineering and you can sort of hack stuff together and a team of 20 year olds can do it Um, and if you get it wrong the first time you fix it in a second version right Um, iterate yeah yeah.
0: okay that that's that's interesting um it it strikes me that one of the bigger themes in the book is this is also the shift um from capital the shift in power uh, from capital to talent, where the early deals, right, there's very few, there's very little or no venture capital in it, and raising capital is very dilutive, um, versus at the end, everybody at the end, now, everybody is sort of competing to be very founder friendly, and, um, and, you know, competes on, on offering the best terms. Do you think so? First of all, is is that is that the right view? And, and do you think that is something that's going to continue? Or is this more of a um, a part of where we are in this cycle, right? Is this a cyclical expression that just right now the capital markets are very friendly or is this sort of the longer arc of there was not enough capital in the beginning and now there's a ton and, and it's going to continue um, to be that way and, and, and get cheaper, I guess, in, in the space.
1: I mean, first of all, you're right. I mean, there is a clear thread in my book describing how in the 60s, uh, Arthur Rock, the father of West Coast venture capital, you know, would 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 take, uh, I think it was a third of the company or maybe more than that actually um, in a series A investment. And then in the 70s, it went down a bit, then it went to a third. And then in the 90s with Google, it was down to 25%. And with Facebook in the 2000s, it was uh, down to, to more like 12%. Um, and so the investors have taken a smaller share of the equity and the founders have had more leverage. And that reflects, I think, two things. First of all, capital abundance. So the providers of capital had less leverage because there was more competition amongst the providers. And secondly, lower capital demand because the founders were doing software projects, and that's less capital intensive. And particularly, it became much less capital intensive with the invention of cloud computing. So you didn't even have to buy a server. So I think that was the, um, those were the fundamental drivers. And on top of that was led a sort of ideology of founder friendliness where, because it was so competitive to get into deals, the, the capital providers started to stress how wonderfully founder friendly they were. And to develop a kind of justifying ideology on top of that, where they would say, well, I'm thinking of Peter Thiel here, by the way, you know, well, Um, in order to have a breakout company, it's got to be done by a breakout kind of person, which means they've got to be non-ordinary. And it's very good that four out of six of my colleagues at PayPal when I founded it had built bombs in high school. And it's only the sort of outlandish eccentric founder who's going to do something really out of the box and become that power law, exceptional super hit company. Um, And I think all of this just went too far, and I hope it's going to uh, swing back. I don't think the pendulum has really swung back yet, although, you know, we're in a moment of correction and valuations, and so maybe it's just starting. But I think that both because um, the nature of the projects that are coming out of Silicon Valley and the tech sector more broadly is changing, you know, we're going back towards hardware a bit, you know, think about um, battery technologies and electronic uh, vehicles, think about some of the medical robotics, think about pharmaceutical discovery, which is highly capital intensive. So the software has really dominated value creation for the last 25 years. It's not necessarily going to do that for the next 25. Um, And I think also there's just been enough cases of governance failure in companies where the investors had no leverage. Here I'm thinking about WeWork and Uber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That there's gotta be a lesson from that.
0: So I always wonder about those cases. And my my first mental model is the credit markets where um, that that are very cyclical, right? And, and when there is not a lot of capital available investors will put in a lot of covenants, a lot of protection, very documents that allow them to um, to protect their downside. However, um, as the environment improves, eventually they're forced to just compete on that because there's it, it's just cyclical in, in terms of capital flows. And in order to stay in business, you basically have to accept where the market clears, which is increasingly uh, creditor friendly. And, and, and so, yeah, it, it struck me that maybe something similar was happening here, where even the people who maybe didn't like uh, the weak governance were sort of forced to um, ultimately you know play the game um that that was being played and if somebody like tiger um or, or some some new player enters and and changes the, the rules of the game and makes it more founder friendly you kind of have to compete it's it's hard to sit out is that um the right way to, to think about it how how did you think about especially these these new entrants that kind of changed some of the the dynamics
1: true that there's just nothing that an individual VC can do to demand more control rights because it's you know, a collective action problem. Your competitors are not gonna do that. Um, and it's definitely the case that you know, when growth investment really started up and I, I pinpoint this at early 2009 when um, Facebook was trying to raise some capital and because of the 08 crisis, Uh, It was very difficult to raise capital, and out of the blue arrived this uh, Russian, Yuri Milner, who had heard about Facebook's capital raise through some friends at Goldman Sachs, and he flew to Silicon Valley, landed there for the first time in his life, and offered Mark Zuckerberg these extraordinary terms where, you know, not only would he not demand a board seat, along with his investment, he would actually promise to vote his shares with Zuckerberg at all times. So instead of diluting his control over Facebook by raising capital, Zuckerberg was actually enhancing his control over Facebook by raising capital. And that was just super seductive. And that did set the terms that then other investors had to copy, Tiger Global being the most energetic, but others following in the same pattern. And so maybe you're right that uh, there's just no way out of that. On the other hand, as you describe with the covenants in the credit markets, there are moments when things blow up and then people for a while behave differently. Yeah. Uh, and we'll see if that if that happens here.
0: Yeah. Um, you've made the the comment um, before that um, part of the, the value that venture capitalists were adding was sort of putting ideas and people and capital to the right use, like optimizing things and, and kind of encouraging these experiments. And when they fail, you reassemble the pieces and, and help um, help that system grow. I'm, I'm I'm curious how you think overall of the how how important are venture capitalists and and also can that entire model. My interpretation from the book was you take the stance that this could can or, or is being exported in, into the rest of the world. It, it ultimately isn't a Silicon Valley. It, it's a I don't know I don't know if it's a business model, but it's an ecosystem. It doesn't have to live in Silicon Valley per se.
1: Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of things in there. I think the first thing is, uh, you know, how important are the venture capitalists? And when I looked carefully and in detail at the history of Silicon Valley and the origin story, um, I came away with a view that they were extremely important. Um, I began hearing people, you know, when I first began the research, people would say, you know, really it's about Stanford. Stanford generates these ideas. Stanford has these generous policies about allowing professors to take sabbaticals you know, that's really the explanation. There's this industrial park around Stanford. That's where, you know, everything happens. And I looked at that, but it just is wrong. I mean, you know, MIT was a stronger engineering school in the uh, 60s and 70s when this whole story began. Uh, And um, there was no clear difference in the porousness, really. And it's not like Stanford professors actually found terribly many startups anyway, and they actors as advisors a bit, but not that many startups. So so that's wrong. And then there was another story about defense contracts being the explanation for the origin of Silicon Valley. And yes, there were defense dollars being spent on semiconductors that came out of the Valley, but there were more defense dollars being spent on the military industrial complex centered on MIT and, and, and the Boston area. So that doesn't explain why Silicon Valley Prove to be more effective than, than anywhere else. Another more persuasive story um, is about non-compete contracts. You know, California has a special provision in the law that says you can't prevent your employee from quitting your company and joining a startup. And that's important to startup ecosystems, and I, I take that seriously. But The same law pertains in Southern California than it does in Northern California. And in the 60s or thereabouts, there was really more tech going on in Southern California because that's where the aerospace industry was. And so you'd have thought that Southern California would have been the Silicon Valley, but no, it was Northern California. And when you look through these different variables, it turns out that venture capital really was the key thing that made Northern California special and in particular sort of especially risk-friendly version of venture capital that was very hands-on and willing to back entrepreneurs, even if they didn't necessarily have all the pieces they needed to make a startup function. You might have a good founder who was good in the sense that he had a, a technical idea for a product, but no business experience. And in Boston, the response would be, well, we can't back that. In Silicon Valley, the response was, we'll get you a co-founder who is a business person. And indeed, I write about the way that Sutter Hill did this with the original daisy wheel printer. Uh, a company called Kume built this and went on to be a massive hit. And they called it the Kume model. They repeated this trick time and again of, of you know, partnering with a a good engineer and then finding the Harvard Business School alumnus who was going to do the business side of the company for the, for the, for the engineer. So that really explained, I think, the reason why Silicon Valley overtook everybody else. And you know, I think you can, you can think more deeply about this by imagining a, a conversation between an engineer who is working for a big company and has an idea and the boss of the big company doesn't want to do the idea. Because maybe it's going to compete with some existing product that the big company has it's a classic innovators dilemma kind of story And so let's imagine that conversation you know the, the there's a frustrated mid-level engineering research person who says, you know damn, that was a good idea. I wish I could pursue it." And um, he's having this conversation in a bar and a venture capitalist hears this and says, "Hey, you know why don't you do it then?" And the engineer says, "I don't have any money to do it." Venture capitalist says, sure, I'll raise the money for you. Engineer says, yeah, but I don't really know how to form a company. I've never done that before. It's not my kind of thing. The venture capitalist says, well, I know how to form companies. I do it all the time. I'll help you. And the engineer says, yeah, but you know, I need to build this product. And it's going to take four or five really good colleagues for me to work with who will help me to build the first prototype. And I don't know where to find those people. And the venture capitalist says, I've got a Rolodex. I'll help you find those people. And then the engineer says, yeah, but you know, I mean, startups are risky. Why would five great engineers quit their nice cushy jobs at Google or wherever it is and come and join me? And the venture capitalist says, I'm gonna tell those people that yes, startups are risky, but if you join this startup and it fails, which it might, I'm gonna look after you. I'm gonna find you another job at another startup because I would have seen that you did a good job and you tried your best. And so in this way, the act of entrepreneurship, which is scary and risky, is a bit de-risked by venture capital. And venture capital is a machine for manufacturing courage. And that's extremely important to understanding how Silicon Valley grew up. I think it explains kind of how China built the second biggest tech ecosystem in the world. I write about that in my book too. And it explains my view, which I don't really get into in my book, but I've, I've talked about with friends and audiences since of why it's gonna to spread to Europe. It's gonna to spread to Latin America. It's gonna spread all over the place. And it's gonna be really a sort of central feature of how the economy functions in the, in the years to come.
0: Yeah, I like that, that, that term, the machine for manufacturing courage. Could have, that could have almost been the, uh, the title of the book. Um, but it strikes me that by cutting off the left tail Right, the the VC sort of cuts off the extreme left tail outcome of well, the startup fails and you're left on the street and nobody will hire you. You enable the right tail of the power law, right? The, the that outcome, you, you make that possible. Um, That's right. Yeah. So so this is interesting, and and I still come back to okay. So the venture capitalists are really important, and anybody who provides capital tries to, you know, will tell you that their capital is different and differentiated. And yet it's very hard to actually prove that. And it strikes me that um, some of the uh, the buyout firms have, have gone public and built sort of alternative asset behemoths and they've built massive firms. And hedge funds on the other hand, come and go with a founder, right? And, and they seem to create, very rarely seem to create any kind of franchise value or any kind of lasting institution. And I'm curious how you think about um through that lens venture capital where there is a partnership but it's you know a a very how do you think about franchise value and whether these turn into long institutions or whether they you know come and go with um, this group of partners that finds their way together and then people you know turn out and and it uh, the firm fades again how does that how does that work and why is it so different across these industries
1: yeah it's a really interesting question i mean basically If you can create a machine, a sort of like a a, a system in your company that can survive a change of staff and pretty much function the same way, then you've got something with franchise value that you can take public. And also if you've got um, predictable revenue streams, it makes it easier to go public. And private equity has both of those things because you know you can scale private equity so large that simply the two percent management fee is a recurring revenue source that's attractive on the public markets um, and they are kind of fairly formulaic things that you do both in evaluating the deal and then adding value afterwards. Um, not to say they're simple because they could involve quite complex say, data science around improving the pricing strategy of the portfolio company after you've bought it. It's not simple, but it's formulaic. It's, it's, it's a system, it's an algorithm, right? That you can prove, you can develop it. And once it's developed, you can kind of keep it functioning even if the developer of the algorithm were to quit. Now, hedge funds, when it comes to discretionary trading, are simply not like that. It's sort of fast judgments that can't be systematized. Um, And there's a funny story in More Money Than God about how Paul Tudor Jones tried to systematize his macro trading, had somebody to sit right next to him and watch uh, his moves and sort of interrogate him on why he did this, why he did that, and try and take those insights and put them into an algorithm and do systematic trading. It just didn't work at all. Um, And so macro trading and various other kinds of judgmental hedge fund strategies just can't be systematized. So you can't take it public. Um, And there's capacity constraints on how big you can scale the strategies. So you also are relying on um, more of the 20% carry and less of the 2% management fee so that's another constraint to going public and the exception in hedge fund space is algorithmic trading where i think the bigger algorithmic traders you know two sigma or whatever um which i think are concentrating market share in a few hands those guys plausibly could go public one day um so i think that's the story with hedge funds now With venture capital, which is it? And I tend to the view that it's more like macro trading. It's a difficult thing to to systematize. Um, And the reason I say that is that although there is brand in venture capital, which is valuable, as I said earlier, the brand is not a guarantee of continued performance. You can have a great brand like Kleiner Perkins in 2001 and you can trash it pretty quickly. And so I think it is about individuals. It is about the judgment of individuals, and it is about, you know, those partners being really good. Um, and you can't just replace them and switch them out. And there's no algorithm. And therefore, I think it would be a mistake for venture capital partnerships to suppose that they should one day go public. Yeah, that's
0: that. That makes sense. I was thinking in some instances, right? The if your core business doesn't scale up enough, you can always add additional strategies. And it's, I think Sequoia has done a little bit of that where they have um, teams that do not just venture, but there's some some public markets. There's now this evergreen vehicle. So I was thinking like, oh, is this going in that direction? But really there might not even be a real benefit to going public. It just increases the hassle. And I don't, I don't know that it would um, benefit them.
1: Um, well, it's always tempting for the founders, right? I mean, their partners, and if they can do a Goldman Sachs, they make themselves unbelievably wealthy if they can cash yeah. out. So it's tempting. Is it a good idea? That's a different question. I mean, you know, in the hedge fund world, you saw a few hedge funds go public, fortress, um, wasn't a good idea really. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Does it, um, I was thinking about the uh, the founders, right? And how it, how it's shifted now to um, almost kind of a, a cult of of youth, um, where you where you try to go earlier and earlier in terms of um, encouraging people um, to to start starting build build companies, um, which is sort of this departure, right? There are a few instances where um, you have this cube model that that you where you had sort of adult supervision, you had an MBA and somebody experienced, and then there's the rebellion, right, within PayPal and um, uh, maybe some other companies where where people kind of started push back against that, right, and you encourage the founder, but but I'm, but I'm wondering, is that, is that, has the pendulum there like swung too far into that side of saying like, no, it has to be somebody who's you know has a fresh look and is and is really young. Only those people have the good ideas. Versus, I'm sure there's um, a lot of people with experience who um, who kind of have seen industries inside out um, and and noticed the problems. Right. What's the what's the balance versus being on the bleeding edge and and young versus um, having seen a lot of real world function that could use new solutions? Is that, is that, does that make sense to think about it that way? Um, mm.
1: I mean, I think the first order answer is that entrepreneurs come in all shapes and sizes um, and any stereotype is a bad idea. Uh, and I forget the specifics here, but there is some um, data on the average age of people who get venture money. I may be quoting this wrong, but um, it's surprisingly high is what I remember. It's like, it's not 20, it's not, it, you know, it's sort of 40 or something, it would, it would, you know, it's it's higher up. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, the most attractive entrepreneurs to investors are often the ones who have done a couple of companies before, and this is, you know, number two or number three, and they really know what they're doing. Um, that's a pretty compelling proposition. Um, Travis Kalanick had done a couple of companies before Uber. Uh, Elon Musk had done two companies before uh, SpaceX or Tesla. So I think it's not all about youth.
0: Yeah. So so what about you? Um, do Do you think the time is ripe to uh, to emulate uh, Moritz? And after after this book, I was just sort of struck by. Um, if networks are so important, why don't... So, so I'm trying to disentangle this, right? On the one hand, networks are very important. So you could think that people like Moritz who have a lot of industry contacts from their days in journalism could could transition into that. And I think at least among the podcasters, I've seen some of that where it, it seems that having that network and having a brand in the space, people then leverage it to, to start investing. Um, and I'm still not sure if it's ultimately a great idea, but it seems like those are, um, I, I don't know if, if you know a lot more cases like Moritz, and, and, and I don't know if it's, in, if it's in your future now that you've spoken to everybody and kind of uh, figured out the model.
1: But it's not in my future. I mean, you know, I love writing and um, it's a great privilege to kind of parachute into different industries and sectors and understand them and try to capture the story. And, you know, I just love what I do. So I don't think I'm gonna do it myself. I think there's a difference between what Moritz did than what you see um, podcasters do today, because Moritz quit his previous job and went all in into investing Mm. and didn't really use his media skills explicitly as a VC. I mean, he did use his storytelling skills. He used the fact that he was very articulate, of course. Um, but it wasn't like he was running a podcast on the side or something, mm. or, you know, yeah. so, so I th- think that was a different story and what people are doing today with podcasting of it's, I think it's less actually being a venture capitalist and it's probably more, um, getting into deals. That's a bit different. I mean, um, when you're a real boots on the ground, all in venture capitalist, that's sort of all you do. And it's all about trying to evaluate investments and trying to help the people you've backed, like with 110% of your time. And it's not about, you know, having a media company on the side. You can have a media company and then you can sort of basically implicitly say to startups, listen, you know, if you let me in on the deal for a little bit, I'll hype your company and it will be useful for you. That's a slightly different model.
0: Yeah. that's true. Um, was there was there were there any deals when you dug into into them? Um, were the what you discovered or how you thought about it, it? It was just very different from the from the public perception because I think there's every startup or every unicorn startup has sort of a, a grand narrative, sometimes expertly crafted, and sometimes it's it's uh, just a, a flaming disaster. But there's often a big story attached to it and i'm curious you got to you got to talk to everybody and and sort of look under the hood and like how often is that perception wrong or where was
1: it where was the gap really wide i mean one example going back a bit in history is cisco where you know this was sequoia's best ever investment when it was done in the uh, late 80s 1987 and Cisco dominated computer routing technology for the next sort of 15 years. Um, And the commonly told story about Cisco is that Sequoia investor, Don Valentine, was the sort of tough guy, founder of Sequoia, former Navy water polo player who didn't mind, you know, yelling in people's faces. And he fired the woman who founded Cisco and then her husband, or maybe by then he was the ex-husband, who was the co-founder, quit in sympathy. And so the founders were booted out and Sequoia basically made Cisco in its own image. And so this book went down in Silicon Valley history as a kind of story about how venture capitalists were ruthless and horrible to founders and you don't wanna trust them with your life. Um, and the reality about that story is that Don Valentine fired the founder of Cisco when essentially the entirety of the management team came to his office and pleaded with him to do so, right? There there was just a a revolt from the staff. Yeah. And that's kind of the story with, um, Elon Musk's ejection from PayPal a couple of decades later. Yeah. Um, You know, the management team came to the investor and said, "You know, we want to change." And so, I think the sort of demonization of the ruthless venture capitalist who fires you is exaggerated.
0: Doesn't it also echo a little bit the the traders' eight, and then again, the traders that signed on to uh, um, uh, to Netscape? All right, there's there's sort of several instances where. Um, sort of a core group of people will leave or will be um or maybe in in the early instances they can't right at shockley there was no mechanism to say well our ceo um the founder of this company like it doesn't work for us there's no mechanism to remove him it was his company so you can only do that actually in a venture-backed company where you can go to the board and and circumnavigate if there is a real conflict between everybody and and the one person at the top
1: yeah sorry so what's the question
0: Oh, so I'm, so I'm wondering, right, like, th- th- it, it almost strikes me, I I've seen this repeated pattern of these coups, and, and, and um, PayPal actually had two. And I'm wondering, right, people see it as, as a negative, because somebody gets ejected, but it can, the company can survive, right? It, it can actually be a good thing for the company versus the the founder, where there was maybe a conflict. And I'm wondering if Shockley Semiconductor had been a venture back company, that same thing could have Possibly oh, yeah. happened, and the, and and you would have not had to have the Traders eight leave and and um, build Fairchild, right? If they could have just gone to a venture capitalist and.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. Yes, that's quite true. If if in fact the traitors eight, um, as I describe in in my book, did try to get Shockley sidelined, not fired, um, and they went to the investor uh, and said, "Look, we can't work with this guy. He's got too much power. He's crazy." And the investor said he would sideline Shockley, but then he chickened out. I think a venture capitalist would not have chickened out. Uh, and so you wouldn't have had to um create Fairchild um as just as you say. So I, I agree with what you just said. It's interesting.
0: Well I'm a huge, huge fan of the book. I, I tell every I mean, I, I think all of my friends have read or are reading it already. So um but this was this was a lot of fun. I really wanna thank you for uh taking the time for sharing and and um I'll make sure to uh to link to to the book and obviously your your Twitter and everything in the uh in the Substack piece. Thank thank you so much Sebastian this was a lot of fun.
1: Great, wonderful, nice to talk to you. Take yes, care. Yes,
0: thank you.